You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Lord willing, we will complete the Gospel of John today. Considering the final five, I guess it's six verses, verses 20 through 25. And so if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me. And we'll read these verses and then pray and begin. Beginning in verse 20 of John chapter 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thank you. you may be seated. If you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank you for this day and for this time. I thank you for your word. Father, what a precious gift your word is to us that we can hear from you, the living God. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would bring this word alive to us. Help us to understand it truly and rightly. Father, I pray that you would keep me from misspeaking. Lord, protect us all from misunderstanding who you are in your word. <laughs> Father, I pray for power and authority from on high. To say what you would have me to say and nothing more, nothing less. Oh God, please be with me. I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified. That he would be set before us in a mighty way. Lord, we ask that you would do these things for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, I debated on whether or not we were going to finish John 21 today. I looked at verses 24 and 25 and it just seemed like there's so much substance there. The idea that if everything Jesus did were to be written down and said, then the world wouldn't contain the books. Seems like a pretty vast thing to say, something we could consider for a long time. But after studying and reading and kind of capturing the point that he's actually making in that, I decided to put it together with our verses today. And I hope you'll see why. Today, we are coming to the end of a very long journey through John's Gospel. We started this, you may not remember, it was April of 2020 when we started going through the Gospel of John. And pretty much every Sunday almost since then that I've been here, we've taken the next bite out of John's Gospel. And today we come to conclude it. But do you remember what the first message we considered in John's Gospel was? Does anyone remember what it was? It was called, Which Jesus Do You Follow? We actually started in John 20, verse 31, and saw the purpose statement of the book that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you would have life in His name. And we considered how the point of John's entire gospel is showing us who Jesus is and how many people there are that have a different Jesus in mind than the one in this book. And that was where we started. And from the beginning of John 1.1, where we see in the beginning was the Word, from that point forward, our, our primary focus week by week has been on seeing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. We saw in the very beginning that He was the Word who had existed eternally by the Father's side. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we went on to see many mighty miracles that this Word performed, not the least of which was creating everything that was made. Jesus made everything, and nothing was made apart from what He made. And then we went on to see, as I say, all these mighty miracles and that He came and entered into humanity. The world that He'd made, He entered as He became flesh in order to save His people. And we went on to see in His actual life and ministry the miracles He performed there, which were revealed to us as deity. Jesus turned the water to wine. He cast out demons. He caused the blind to see, the lame to walk. And He even raised people from the dead. Jesus demonstrated His unquestionable power by commanding the storm to be still and it obeyed Him. And causing a group of soldiers to be thrown on their backs at a mere word. And though He had access to limitless power and authority, we saw Jesus in His perfect humanity subjecting Himself to the Father's will. He endured hardships, difficulties, persecution, and hatred, all without sinning and maintaining perfect righteousness. And we went on furthermore to see that in, in His incarnation, all His mighty miracles and His sinless life, they were not merely acts of benevolence towards those who lived to see them. This is a, a repeated theme we've seen through the Gospel of John, is that Jesus did these mighty things and people were so blown away by the things that He did, and yet they stopped short of and did not see that those blessings we could call them were not an end in themselves. They were revealing something about him and why He actually came. And furthermore, you and I, we're not gathered here today simply to celebrate Jesus as a kind teacher. Jesus as a moral example. That's not why we're here. Jesus came into this world in order to die. The Son of God suffered and died as a substitute in the place of sinners. And having perfectly extinguished all the wrath of His Father against His people, He rose from the dead triumphantly. These are all the things, a very quick rundown of all that John has been setting before us as an eyewitness. And most recently, what we were looking at, if you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, was we saw Jesus restoring Peter after his public sin and failure of denying the Lord. And He restored Peter and then declared to Peter the way in which he was going to die. So with all of that in mind, as an introduction, let us consider now John's closing words of this Gospel account. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So this verse 20 is just a clear reference to us that this is John. This is the Apostle John. And Peter, as he's following Jesus, talking with Jesus, Jesus has just literally been telling Peter how he's going to die. He's going to be crucified upside down. He's telling him his hands are going to be stretched out. After he says that, it's as though Peter looks back and sees John walking behind him. And so it's indicating to us who this is. A description. This is John's preferred description of himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved. 
But then he further indicates to us it was him by accounting his position with the Lord at that last supper. And so this is just simply to put it very plainly. John is identifying himself in verse 20. And then in verse 21 is where it starts to get interesting. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now You can imagine this unfolding and it might even seem a little bit comical at first when you look at it. Jesus says to Peter, this is how you're going to die. Peter looks and sees John and says, what about him? What's going to happen to this guy over here? Well, I want to ground us in the context a little bit and see something. Peter and John were extremely close. This is something we've seen a number of times going through John's gospel, isn't it? Both Peter and John had been fishermen before they were called to be fishers of men. We've seen them both in what you might call Jesus' inner circle. There was Peter, James, and John. John and Peter were in that inner circle. They got to witness Jesus transfigured together. They were both brought into further into Gethsemane with Jesus the night he was arrested. And we also saw recently that both Peter and John were together the night that he was arrested. And actually, you recall, John had the girl let Peter into the place, into the courtyard there. And then we saw where they had raced together to the empty tomb after Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter, with his very close friend, John, has just been told the way he's going to die. And when he sees him. He asked the Lord what's going to happen to John. Now, I think it's possible and even likely that there was some genuine concern for John in this question. Is that fair enough to to consider as soon as he's considering his own death and then he sees his close friend, John? Well, what about him? There probably was a measure of concern that's very legitimate and right in the question. However, Jesus reveals in his response that there was a sinful root in Peter's question. How common do you suppose that attitude is today? Are we not all just like Peter is showing us here, prone to look at other people, to measure other people's lives, their difficulties and suffering? I mean, this is a common theme. We always think that our suffering is worse than anybody else's, don't we? And whenever I see my my own suffering and I see someone who I think isn't suffering, then I tend to ask the questions like, well, why are they not going through what I'm going through? Why, Why is this happening to me? Why isn't something bad happening to that person? These are the kinds of questions that we typically ask ourselves, or we may even be bold enough to ask out loud. But Jesus reveals here there's an issue with Peter. And there's something that needs to be corrected in Peter at this scene. There's something that has to be changed in him. And so I wonder of us, is it, is it true that we imagine that our suffering is greater than someone else's? Well, I want to be clear about something here. The first thing we need to clear up is that it is a fact that the lack of apparent suffering in this life is no indication of the love or favor of God. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is why we do this. We look at other people's lives and we'll say, well, theirs is better than mine or they're getting something that I don't get or I'm going through something they're not having to go through. And we'll measure as though God, if He loved me, then He wouldn't be putting me through the things that I'm going through. All from just looking at the way we compare one another. And what I'm telling you is that when you see someone who does not appear to be suffering very much in this life, it is no indication that God loves or has favor toward them. And on the other side, suffering and misery is no indication of a lack of love or favor from God. And I want to show you this just from one scripture. 
Romans 9.13, referencing the Old Testament, says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? God says He loved Jacob. Well, if you go and look at Jacob and Esau's life, you'll find some interesting things. Um, Firstly, you'll find this. Jacob, someone once said Jacob got beat up every day of his life. That he had a very difficult life. And a lot of it was probably brought on by his own deception and his own dishonesty. He suffered as a result of his sin. But God loved him. And most notably, you see all the struggles that Jacob went through. And you see him getting done dirty and, uh, by, by Laban whenever he's supposed to have his wife, Rachel, and he gets Leah instead. You see all that he goes through. But essentially, the picture of Jacob's being loved and blessed by God comes when? Whenever he wrestles with God and he has his hip put out of place. He suffered. He went through difficulty. And you, you know what was true about Jacob when he wrestled with God? His hip was put out of place and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Suffering difficulty and trial. Esau, on the other hand, was a mighty nation. Esau had several kings come from his line. He prospered in everything that he did. And yet the Scripture says, Esau, I hate it. Here's the point. That some of the most prosperous and comfortable people in this world are going to step out into eternity when they die with no relationship to God in Christ. And they'll all know for eternity, the only thing they will know is the wrath and hatred of God because of their sin. And yet some of the most destitute and misery-laden people in the world are beloved saints of God. Is this not pictured perfectly for us with Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16? I just want to read this quickly to get in this mind. We're looking at Peter today, looking at John, imagining his own death and how he thinks John might suffer in a like way. And how we look at each other and measure one another. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father, Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Very familiar telling. But the point emphasized is that what we're being reminded of right now is that suffering in this life, difficulty and looking at other people's suffering compared to my own is no indication of God's favor on your life. But I want to make this point in case someone's tempted to think that those who are suffering and going through difficulty are inherently favored by God. That's not true either. 
God is no respecter of persons. And if you want to know if someone is favored by God, the real question you should be asking is what is their relationship to Jesus Christ? But how does Jesus answer Peter's question? To continue our application, what does Jesus say to Peter about how John is going to die? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is it? Or what is that to you? You follow me. Now let's be clear again that it's not wrong to have an interest or concern about the well-being of others. It's not wrong that Peter wants to know how John, what's going to happen with John. But Jesus, who sees into Peter's heart, knows that there's more in his heart going on than that. Now think of this in the context. What has Jesus' primary ministry to Peter been recently? He's come to Peter. He's restored Peter to ministry. He's brought up his sin. He's given an opportunity to correct his failure and denial by pronouncing his love for Christ openly three times and restored to ministry. And then he's most recently told Peter the way Peter's going to die. And so the problem here with John is that, or with Peter is that Peter's focus on John is going to be a hindrance to him doing what the Lord is preparing him to do. So Jesus reveals in his answer here that what is most necessary if you're going to do likewise and honor the Lord with your life is that you be focused on following him. Think of it this way. So long as Peter's focus was looking at John and what might or might not happen to him, it meant that his focus was not on following the Lord. And so I want to ask us the title of this message you may have seen. You might have thought, well, that's an odd title is how will you die? How will you die? It's not will you die? You will. But how will you die? Unless the Lord returns before then, how will you die? Here we're told of we see Peter being confronted with his death and Jesus is actually preparing and conditioning Peter to be able to die well, to be able to die in a way that honors the Lord. And think of that. Did you notice that back in verse 19? I didn't say much about it last week, but verse 19 says this. He said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Do you think about death as something that glorifies God? Do you think about your own death as something that glorifies God? Do you think about whenever you die, the circumstances around your death, whether it's as a martyr suffering and being put to death because of faith in Christ or some terrible disease or whatever the situation is, when you come to face death, people pay attention, don't they? Death draws people's attention and it gives an opportunity to be a testimony and a witness to something. My question is, how will you die? Will you die well is the idea. And so we're seeing Jesus is dealing with and preparing Peter to be able to die well. That you and I might be able to live our lives in such a way that honor Christ. I mean, is that not what we want? We want to honor Christ. We want to live in a way that honors Christ. And so what is most singularly needed is a focus upon Christ himself. That's the issue here with Peter. Instead of looking at John, he should be looking at and following Christ. But this tells us several things. We must be people of conviction. If we're going to honor the Lord and be prepared to even potentially die, I know probably some of you growing up thought there's no way that a Christian's ever going to 
die or be persecuted in this country because of faith in Jesus. Some, several of you probably. Matter of fact, uh, Hoagie Carmichael told me that just this last week. He said growing up, he never would have dreamed that he would see Christians persecuted in this country for believing in Jesus. And so it very well may come to that in the years ahead or days or months ahead. But regardless of if we die on a stake or in a prison cell or comfortably in our beds or in a hospital room with family surrounding us, the point is that we would be people of conviction that were completely convinced of how we were living and what we were going to do regardless of what anybody else does. Do you see that in the text? Here's John. Peter's looking at him. He's trying to figure out what's going to happen with John's death. And the point is, as long as we're measuring our obedience to Christ by what other people are or are not doing, then we're going to be blown around in every direction. The point is, have your focus and your commitments and your convictions grounded in Christ. Listen to the picture we get of this in Philippians chapter 3 from Paul. The picture is that there is a singular focus. There is one goal, one desire, one aim. And that is the only way that we're going to be prepared to live and die well for Christ. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I read that lengthy section because here we have Paul and he's writing about this picture of a singular pursuit of Christ, a singular devotion that even leads to suffering and death. Did you catch that? That I may share in his sufferings. And now Peter's being told, you're going to get to share in my suffering. You saw me crucified, Peter. You're going to be crucified. You're going to follow after me. You're going to die for me and for my glory. That's what's going to happen to you, Peter. And the only way that he's going to be fitted and prepared to go and do that if his heart is focused on the Lord himself. And that's what we see depicted there with Paul. And I wonder how many of us could say that we have a similar attitude and understanding. 
Press on, look with me at verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now this is a fascinating statement, and I thought about referring to this in the Sunday school this morning. We had some questions asked in the adult class about how is it that people can take some Scripture and twist it to mean something entirely different? How does that happen? Well, isn't it amazing that we have a perfect example right in front of us? And he says that it's spread among the brothers. And so we can maybe assume that these are genuine Christian people misunderstanding the Word of Christ, misunderstanding what he said, taking something he said and jumping to conclusions about it. Consider the way that this works. Jesus says in his confrontation of Peter's wrong thinking, he says to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's what he says to Peter. And it gets interpreted what way? That John's not going to die until the Lord comes back again. Isn't that a perfect example of how false doctrine gets spread? You take a truth, you take a statement of truth from the mouth of Jesus Himself, but when you rip it out of its context and you gut it of its meaning, then you can say anything you want to say. You see, there were those in the church, obviously, who seemed to infer from the words here that John wasn't going to die. But John very clearly addresses this to us as an error, and he proves it how. This is the interesting thing. How does John prove that that's a wrong thing to think? In our text in front of us now, he proves it by appealing to what Jesus actually said. Now think of this practically, how helpful this is to us. How many bad ideas are there out there when it comes to religion and Christianity and life? There's so much wrong teaching. The best way to defend against all error is to go back to the specific Word of God. Isn't that what John does? See, it says the saying is spreading. The gossip people are saying, well, John's not going to die. How does John address it? He says, Jesus did not say that. This is what he said. He appeals to exact, the exact words that Jesus gave. And furthermore, he puts them back in the context of what was going on with Peter to show what he actually meant when he said that. And it's very likely that the majority of people, even genuine Christians today, believe what they believe, not because they can see and prove it from the Bible, but it's because that's what they've been told or what they've imagined themselves. And those that do know some Scripture, I've seen this play out dozens of times. Someone knows a little bit of Scripture and they've got bad ideas, wrong understanding of the Scriptures, but they know a little bit of it. And maybe in a group with people who don't know very much Scripture at all, they can impress some people by having some verses memorized. But whenever you say, hey, take that Scripture you just quoted and put it in its context and explain it to me what it means that way. Most of the time, they, they don't even try. They can't even attempt to do it. But what John does to fix the error in our text is he says, no, Jesus did not say that he was not to die. He said, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? He puts it back in its context. He exposes the wrong belief by showing that Jesus is actually making a point to Peter, not making a declaration about John specifically. History also helps us at this point. John makes it clear enough in the Scriptures, but we know historically that John was the only apostle who did not suffer and die a martyr's death. We know that historically John was covered in scalding hot tar, 
and then exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And he was the last living apostle until his death. But Jesus is not a liar. Whenever Jesus says this, he's obviously and plainly in the context, making a point to Peter when you put it back in its context. But I do want to draw a little bit of encouragement from this statement. It is true. Jesus' primary point is to challenge Peter and tell Peter, Peter, take your eyes off of John. Don't be worried about what's going to happen to other people. You focus on me and following me. That's his main point. But notice this. This isn't even questioned. There's not even a question brought up as to whether or not Jesus can say this. Think of this. His words are primarily making this point to Peter. But listen to this truth. He says, if it is my will that he remain. What does that tell you? What does it tell you when Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come? It tells us this. All the days of your life the day of your death and the day in which you will die are determined by the will of Jesus Christ. Is that not an encouraging thing to think about? Jesus says this. He says that if it is my will that he remain. In other words, Jesus has the power to exercise his will in such a way to determine the exact number of days a person lives until they die and the way in which they die. All of this, everything upheld by the word of this one's power, Consider it from Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I want to argue that it's quite a glorious and even liberating truth. You see, if I'm shackled by the fear of death being around any corner, I could get sick, I could get in an accident. We're not talking about going and running around doing silly things, putting the Lord to the test. But we can live with an exciting kind of freedom to know that your days are written in his book and you're going to live not one moment longer than God has ordained for you to live. That ought to give us freedom to go and pursue life with excitement, with adventure, wonder and joy. For the glory of God, knowing that every one of our days and moments, seconds even, have been planned and ordered by God. We cannot take away or add to that number in any way. George Whitfield had a similar encouragement. He said on one occasion, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. You can't die until the Lord says your days are up. That's a mighty and powerful testimony and proclamation and you know it's likely they were trying to kill John when they poured the hot tar on him but God had more for him to do the apostle Paul he was stoned to death in all likelihood the Lord raised him up no it's not your time to die yet your days are written and they're ordered by the, the will of Jesus Christ we saw in this death the way that we die my question is according to these scriptures do we view the death of a Christian as a God-glorifying thing. Do you view your own death in this way? I'm challenged to think about my own death whenever I think. And you could say, some of you say, oh yeah, you're still a young man though. Whenever you get a little older, you won't have quite as much zeal or lead in your pencil maybe. But I just have to say that the testimony of Scripture is an encouraging thing to me. That there's something burning. Something burning in the heart of a believer that says, I want to honor Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to live and die in such a way that says something about what my focus is. The trouble is I don't often live up to that conviction. 
Sounds really good for me to say to you here from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. But to live in a way and be prepared to die in a way. I think about it this way also. You know, there, a lot of times you'll see it depicted of an unbeliever that they'll hear, they'll be in a difficult situation. They'll be facing death, maybe trapped somewhere. Maybe they're stranded in a very dangerous context. And you'll see it depicted in movies where someone will begin praying and they might say, God, if you'll do, if you'll get me out of this, then I'll, I'll straighten up, I'll get my act together, I'll start living rightly. You see it depicted that way. Well, as Christians, I'm afraid we sometimes live with a similar mentality. Perhaps we're not living in grievous or horrific sin. We're not maybe drug addicts or prostitutes or living and doing those gross external things and child molesters. We're not those things maybe. But much of the time, how much would it change your life and the way you live now if you were preparing this very moment to meet the Lord? If you knew that your days were up, if you knew that you were about to die, how might that impact the way you live between this moment and that one? And for the Christian, it shouldn't change it at all. Those of us who are loved by God, forgiven in Christ, ought to be desiring to live for Him every moment in every way. To be reminded, to be able to even say with Paul, to die is gain. Are you prepared to die well? Do you believe that your death is going to be seen as a testimony of one who was graduating from this sin-ridden world into an eternal sinless kingdom? You see, if Christ truly is your desire and being with Him is your deepest longing, then your grip on this world is just going to get softer and softer and softer until you entirely release it. A heart which is set upon Christ and eyes which are focused on following Him are those which will be prepared to live for Him and yes, even to die for Him. From there we come into verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. So once again, we're reminded that John has delivered these things to us as an eyewitness. He actually saw all of these things. But more than that, more important than that, John wrote these things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This means that these things we've been reading and seeing are not merely John's accounting of events, but they're the words of God Himself. Now I could imagine some of you, maybe, maybe me hearing that and at times I, I hear testimony from people in the scriptures or even in history and I think, well, yeah, but they saw some incredible things. If you saw all that John saw, it might be you might think it would be a little easier to believe it, to believe these things. I mean, yeah, maybe I'd be prepared to have hot tar poured on my head if I had seen and witnessed the things. If you saw Jesus transfigured, how much would that impact? And I want to challenge that kind of thinking. And maybe I'm the only one that's tempted to think if I just could see a little bit more evidence of what God is doing or has done, then it would help me to live more faithfully, to live more rightly if I were an eyewitness too. But I want to challenge that thought by reading from 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's very interesting. And John is included and Peter in this scene that we're going to see about here. 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen from verses 16 through 21. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now you follow what Peter's saying there? He's talking about their eyewitness account at the transfiguration. So John was there with him too, and James. And they're there and they saw the Lord transfigured. And he says, we saw with our own eyes, we were there, and we even heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son. Now this is a radical experience. This is something how many of you would like to have seen and heard these things? Would that not be incredible? And yet what does Peter say? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he talking about here? What's the prophetic word more fully confirmed? He's saying there's something even more certain than what we saw with our eyes and what we heard with our ears in the word of God, the scriptures. That's it's not an accident that he starts talking about the scriptures in verse 20 and 21 there. He's saying there is something more certain than even the evidence and what you can see with your eyes and feel with your hands and hear with your ears. There's something you can see in the word of God that's absolutely certain. It doesn't come from a man's opinion. This is his whole argument. He's saying we don't have a cleverly devised myth. We're not making it up as we go. These things are coming directly from God in his word. There's no amount of evidence or sight, physical sight, which has the power to produce belief in Jesus Christ. John's telling us, I'm an eyewitness and I've written these things down and my testimony is trustworthy. Why can we believe what he's saying? Why is anyone ever going to believe these things that we're hearing about Jesus? Why would anyone? The scriptures, the very word of God must go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit and produce faith in the heart of a human being. That's the only way. We're seeing this testimony, eyewitness testimony, and apart from God taking this truth, it wasn't that a fascinating and glorious depiction. He says, until the day, the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, as a light shines in a dark place, until God comes to you and says, let there be light, and He takes His Word and plants it in your heart, and there's this coming up of light and understanding from within. Until God does that, there will be no understanding. But the testimony that He's given to us by John through this Word is trustworthy and true. And we get to verse 25. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you believe God? I mean, that's essentially what this comes down to. Do you believe God? Do you remember that was the purpose statement of the whole book? These are written. It's all written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
and have life in his name. Do you believe this witness, this eyewitness account given by John has meant that you and I would believe? And we're finding here, he says, that where every one of these other things that Jesus did to be written down, that the world could not contain the books that would be written. The final word that John gives us at the close of his gospel is a testimony of the endless and eternal nature of Christ's words and works. Do you know this? We will spend all of eternity tracking down the glories of Christ and never come to the end of them. That's what I heard Paul Washer say one time. He said that people argue a lot about eschatology and end times. And he said, my friend, you'll know everything there is to know about the last day on the last day. But you'll spend eternity tracking down the glory of Christ's cross and never even reach the foothills of that mountain. We will spend all of eternity pursuing and growing in our knowledge and love for Christ. And this is a testimony from John that there, there's, so, there's so many things that could have been said about Jesus that the world wouldn't contain the books. But I want you to see the emphasis in the flow of thought and in the context here. Don't miss this. There is no end to what could be said about Christ. But what will you do with what has been said about Him? I can imagine somebody hearing this and saying, man, if I could only find out what all those other things John's alluding to here, maybe one of them might help me to believe. The answer is no. What are you going to do with the words that are here? What has been given? What will you do with the words, the testimony, the witness given from God through John to you today? And what is relationship is that going to have with how you're prepared to die? How you're prepared to die? I wonder who in their right mind would ever rejoice to be crucified upside down? Who could do that? Who could rejoice to be burned at the stake as many have been? Who would rejoice like John to have the hot tar poured on his head? What could motivate? You know, he had to go around permanently disfigured the rest of his life after that. Completely marred. What could motivate a person to live and even to die for Jesus Christ? What is it that Jesus is doing to Peter by directing his attention on following him? What is it specifically? Well, it's as simple as one verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Why? Why be prepared? I'm going to tell you, if your focus, if your mind and your attention gets off of this Jesus who's come into the world to die for His people, if your attention is off of Him, you're going to just flounder. You're going to be weak and failing, not prepared to live or die well. When your focus is on Him, the Son who died to give you eternal life, you'll be prepared to both live and die well. I just want to read a final time at the close here from John chapter 20. I've said it already. But just listen to these things. Verses 30 and 31. A similar word. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Final charge is this. To hear the Word of the Lord. To believe. To believe that He is the One sent from God as a substitute for sinners to die under the wrath of God and that He rose from the dead. And He says, come and follow Me. Repent of your sin and believe in Him today. And you'll be saved. I pray that you would. In a moment, we're going to gather to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to partake together and share in being witnesses of the death of Christ, proclaiming His death until He does come. And so, at this time, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close the message in prayer and get ready to take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, Lord, You are good. Your Word is mighty. Father, all of us are not myself chiefly weak and dependent upon You. Father, I pray that You would bless Your Word as it's gone forth. Your Spirit and Your Word are mightier than anyone's ability to deliver it. Lord, I ask that You would bless us now as we gather around Your table and that these things would be an encouragement to us all. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.